वसुदेवसुत कंसचाणरमर्दनम भगवद गीता क्लास एंड वी आर स्टडिंग देंथ चैप्टर एंड नाउ द प्रॉब्लम बिफोर मी इज वट्स गोइंग ऑन राइट नाउ इज श्री कृष्ण इज पॉइंटिंग आउट वॉट इन दिस वर्ल्ड ऑफ नेचर दिस वर्ल्ड where can we focus and think of god see the point here is often when you read about religion spirituality we are instructed to turn away from the world and think about god and that's difficult the mind always goes out to the world and in fact the upanishads say because our minds are always running outwards we see the world we do not see god we see the world we do not see our real nature um paranchi khani vyatrinat swayambhu tasmat parang pashyati nantaratman katopanishad says the senses are turned outwards as if you know by a designer defect <laughs> and so we see the world that's what they're designed to do and you can't blame the senses and then the senses run outward into the world the mind follows There's a chair here. You can sit. You can come in the front if if you want. There's a chair here also. You got one? Yes. Yeah, sure. Um so the mind runs after it and therefore we are engrossed in the world. We do not see the reality beyond the world which we call God, nor do we see the reality within ourselves. Our real nature which is the atman or, or the, our uh, pure consciousness what we truly are. Um now krishna suggests in this uh, uh, chapter a way out of this this uh, conundrum how about let the senses run out into the world let us think about the world let us see god in the world so there are places and according to vedanta um, whatever you see in the world actually is pervaded by god by brahman brahman alone appears as this entire universe um but what krishna says here is there are things in this world which are extraordinarily attractive powerful excellent so it's easier to think of god or focus your mind in something that is naturally attractive and so he starts giving you a list of things which you see in the world and connects them to god so when you see this think of god when you see the sun and the moon you think of god uh, when you see the river ganga you think of god uh, when you see and so on one after another excellence which we see in nature and you just use that to remind yourself of god by the way just because i mentioned it i'll um tell you this little anecdote i have often quoted from the open that particular verse mantra from the upanishads which says that because we are constantly engrossed in the world outside we do not see our real nature we are constantly thinking of the world engaged with the world and therefore we do not see that we are the atman and i said this in a conference many years ago and there were other speakers and there was i remember there was this um, uh, speaker after me um so she stood up to say the swami says we are uh, looking at the world outside and that's why we do not see the self within even if we are looking at the world that would still be a good thing you know we are always looking at our screens And today it would be a nice thing if people were to look up from the screens and look at the world and look at people look at nature <laughs> yeah um now let's so the problem before me is krishna is giving you basically is giving you a list and there isn't much philosophy to explain here so what do i do to fill up the time i can race through these um, shlokas which i will do but one way i found was um, stories i can tell stories <laughs> many of these references are full of uh, they are loaded with with uh, wonderful stories we studied up to verse 30 last time shloka 30 so 31 we'll start with 31 those of you who want to you can f- uh, follow the chanting 
ಪವನಪವತಾಸ್ಮಿಪವನಪವತಾಸ್ಮಿಸ್ಮಿಸ್ಮಿಸ್ಮಿಸ್ಮಿಸ್ಮಿಸ್ಮಿಸ್ಮ
And so go and find the horse. So the 60,000 sons went out to search for the horse and they searched all over the world. Obviously they couldn't find it. Finally they went to the underworld uh, in Patala and then they came upon the place where the sage Kapila was meditating and they found the horse. Um, now they made such a noise, I mean 60,000 of them, so 60,000 uh, boys, you know, so they made a lot of noise and the sage Kapila was meditating and that of course disturbed him. So he, in irritation he opened his eyes and he looked upon the 60,000 with irritation, he you know, glared at them. So as he glared at them, they were all reduced to ashes, they were burned to ashes, all 60,000 of them. Now the terrible thing was who would, you know, how are they going to be released from the underworld and go to heaven? All the 60,000 sons of uh, the, the great King Sagara. There was no way. Who would purify their, from their, them from their sins and release them so that they could go to heaven? Um, his lineage continued. That's where the one, 60,000 plus one comes in. That one son obviously survived. And... Uh, Neither Sagara nor his son, that one son nor his son could do anything about those 60,000 um, trapped souls until in that lineage the great grandson of the king Sagara came, Bhagiratha. He was also a king and he decided to do this tremendous task to free his uh, ancestors from the underworld, you know, purify them. How could that be done? He hit upon a plan. Um, they heavenly river Ganga if it could be persuaded to come to earth. So at that time Ganga was not on, on this world. If it could be persuaded, if she could be persuaded to come to earth and then sort of led to the, the underworld where the 60,000 were trapped, just by the purifying waters of the river, uh, they would be freed. So he prayed and prayed and prayed and Ganga appeared before him and said, alright, I'm pleased with you, I will do as, as, as you say. But when you see a but, you immediately know another story is coming. <laughs> Ganga said, when I come down to earth, uh, the force of my descent will be so, so tremendous that the earth will not be able to bear it. So what do we do? She advised Bhagiratha, go and pray to Shiva. The only one who can bear the force of my descent is Shiva. His matted locks, his dreadlocks are there. So I will come down on his top knot. And then it sort of flow down his matted locks of hair, and you know those are the tributaries and all. They will, he will flow, she will flow down, and then I will descend to earth uh, in a much more gentle form. Now Bhagirath goes, and by the way, when he prayed to Ganga, he prayed for a thousand years. So when he goes to Shiva now, then he prayed to Shiva for a thousand years, and then Shiva appears before him and agrees to bear the the force of Ganga's descent. And so that's why in the iconography of Shiva you will see Ganga pouring down. It's not he's, he's not taking a shower. It looks like that, but it's actually Ganga coming down uh, from his uh, top knot. It's the water is trickling down. Um, Ganga poured down from the heavens into Shiva's top knot and trickled down, but he had he hadn't been to a barber in millennia, so he had so much hair that uh, Ganga got lost in that. And not a single drop of water came down to the earth. She kept going round and round in the mat of the hair for a thousand years again. And so um, it didn't work. Poor Bhagirath waited and waited and waited. And by the way, it's not unknown. I saw this monk in the Himalayas. He gets a haircut after the snows melt. So he gets a haircut after six months. And he has got matted hair. I saw him on his way to the... When the barber comes from the plains into the uh, heights, so there are, he has customers, so there are monks who are waiting six months for a haircut. <laughs> I actually saw one of them. Um, so finally Shiva was um, entreated, do something about it, Ganga is trapped in your hair. So he shook his head and from his shaking his uh, head from the hair, one drop of water fell on the earth and that's the river we see as the great uh, Ganga flowing over in the plains of India from the Himalayas. So Bhagirath now went on his great quest. He led Ganga. Follow me, he said. That's why Ganga is called Bhagirathi. That's the name of Ganga, Bhagirathi. So follow me. 
Now, on the way, Ganga meandered here and there. There was the um, sage Janhu. He was actually a king who had given up his kingdom to his son and he was conducting a great Vedic ritual. So he was there meditating and conducting a massive Vedic ritual, a yajna, which would take many, many years. Not a thousand years, but many, many years. And Ganga, unwittingly, when she was meandering here and there in the plains, she swept through his ashram and flooded out his uh, sacrificial hall. Now the furious sage uh, Janhu, he said, he cursed her and said, you spoilt my grand sacrifice. I'm going to punish you. I'm going to drink you up so that you don't go one step further and stop your mischief. So he drank up the Ganga. Poor Bhagirath, he suddenly saw Ganga is no, no longer behind him. Again, he retraced his way back. And what happened? And there's no Ganga anymore. Then uh, they, they were told that, he was told that the sage has, um, uh, he, he drank all of Ganga. Then finally he went to the sage and entreated him, please let Ganga go. And so Janur agreed. And so Ganga poured out of his ear. And so Ganga is known as, also another name is Janhavi, the daughter of Janhu. She was born of Janhu, the Rishi. Again, the journey resumed. And finally, um, of course, to complete the story, Bhagirath did manage to bring Ganga across the world and into the netherworld and free 60,000 of his ancestors from their sins and they were delivered to heaven. So that's the story, Janhavi. Yes. Okay, that's a nice thing to know. That Bhagirath has tremendous efforts. He got Ganga to the world. And uh, here is an addition to the story that when people praise Bhagirath, he is very humble. He says, it's not just me. It's all my forefathers taken together. It's true. It's true. We are all um, what we are. Like Newton saying that we stand on shoulders of giants. So we stand on the shoulders of our forefathers. Not, not just our own family, but all of humanity. I was just reading, Vivekananda makes an extraordinary statement. He says, we must live the life of all of humanity. If you live the life of all the past, of whatever has happened in history, you are called an educated person. It's basically, the accumulated knowledge and culture of humanity, as much as you can absorb, that's education. And if you live the life of the future, all of future of humanity, you are an enlightened person, spiritual no, Jivan Mukta, he uses the term. The Jivan Mukta is somebody who has lived not only the past of humanity, but also the future, the destiny of humanity. In this life, you become enlightened and free. One more, as an aside, I can't help it. Silly story, but it's true. So when I read about the, um, the story of Ganga, who uh, you know, washed across Janhu's ashram and drowned the big hall, I was immediately reminded of something that happened in our main monastery, which is on the bank of the Ganga, in, across from Calcutta to Belurmat is our main monastery. So we have a big hall um, where the monks uh, have food. So about 200, 300 monks, they gather in this big hall to have food. Now it's on the bank, literally on the bank of the Ganga. Now what happens is, at that place, it's, it's very close to where Ganga meets the ocean. It's a place called Ganga Sagar, where Ganga meets the ocean. Uh, ocean means the Bay of Bengal. Now, because it's close to the sea, the high tide and the low tide affect the Ganga. So, you'll have this extraordinary sight of the river, sometimes flowing from um, north to south, sometimes from south to north, <laughs> depending on the tides in the, in the Bay of Bengal. And there are people who, who live you know, up-country, who have never seen such a thing. I, just, I remember one of the monks, we, one of the, our pastimes was when you're free, you would just sit and watch the river. You're gonna sit. <laughs> so one of the monks, I was sitting there, another monk came and sat near me at a rock and sitting and watching the river. And he looked at it, he said, I'm coming back after 20 years to our main monastery. You know, in our time, the river would flow this way. <laughs> I said, it's not in your time, it's twice a day. <laughs> yeah. Now what happens is, 
Sometimes in the rainy season, in the high tide, the Ganga rises and it floods the monastery. So that's an incredible thing. You have boats coming up to the temples and uh, you, you are wading around in knee deep or sometimes I remember once waist deep water. Um, so one day we were eat, having food, all the monks, two or three hundred monks. And the monk in charge of the kitchen, uh, there's a very formal way of making announcements. He would come, nowadays they have a microphone, earlier they, he would just roar it out, the announcement, in the big hall. He would have to first bow down to the monks. Revered monks, I bow down to you. Here is an announcement. The Ganges, the Ganga is rising. Please finish your food uh, soon because we are expecting the hall to go underwater pretty soon. <laughs> and it happened. As we started, we quickly we picked up the pace trying to finish our food. Water started pouring in from all the doors, from all sides. I remember I was also standing up and uh, eating because the, now the floor was flooded. And slowly the water started rising. So we finished and we rushed out, or rather waded out of the uh, hall. And to our horror, when you enter the hall, you have you will see rows, like 300 people, so 600 um, sandals, you know, slippers. They've all been swept away. <laughs> it's all swirling around everywhere. <laughs> yeah. So that's what, what must have happened to the sage Janhu's ashram. No wonder he was furious with the Ganga. All right, that's one story. Uh, number 32. Sarganam adirantascha Sarganam adirantascha Madhyam chaivaham arjuna Madhyam chaivaham arjuna Adhyatma vidya vidyanam Adhyatma vidya vidyanam Vada pravadatamaham Vada pravadatamaham Of creations I am the beginning, the end and also the middle, O Arjuna. Of sciences I am metaphysics and I am the constructive reasoning of the controversialists. So what does this mean? Of... Um, Creation, I am the beginning, middle and end. This is the definition of God. You know, what is this chapter about? The glories of God. You look out into nature and see the glory, the power of in nature and connect it to God and meditate on God in that way. So that is the whole chapter. It is among the greatest glories of God is this universe. God in um, Vedanta, in Sanskrit, Saguna Brahman, Ishwara, Bhagavan, whatever name you use. The God of religion, in every religion that believes in God, the common definition of God is the creator. One common thing. The one who created this universe. So here it is said, this universe, its creation is my glory. The beginning of the universe, I am. In the middle of the universe, I am, when it exists. And at the end of all things, I am. In Islam, in the Quran, there are 99 names of Allah. 99 names of Allah. So it's very beautiful if you hear the chant, 99 names of Allah. One of those names is, uh, I am the beginning. And the, uh, the la one of the names is, I am the end. I forget the original Arabic. Very beautiful Arabic. One of our monks, who is a Muslim, and now a monk in our order, he's an expert in the Quran. And he says, if you listen to the chanting of uh, uh, the Quran in the original Arabic, you will go into Samadhi. <laughs> so, very beautiful. One of the names is Allawal. I think the beginning. And the last one, I am the end of all things. So, this is the two names. But in, uh, in Hinduism, also in the middle, when the universe exists, what truly exists is God. At the beginning of the ornament, if you make a golden ornament, at the beginning of the ornament, what's there? Gold. And if you melt it at the end of, you know, at, at the very, after many years, if you melt that ornament, what's there? Gold. But not only that, when the ornament was there, the bracelet was there, what was there? Actually, gold. So God as the material cause, as the substance 
of this universe, reality of this universe is always there, beginning, middle and end. And the commentator here says that Srishti uh, Stiti Pralaya, one of the definitions of God you find in the Brahma Sutras, Janma Dhyasya Yataha, the, the third sutra in the Brahma Sutras, that from which the universe is born, in which the universe exists, and into which the universe finally disappears, that is God. That's one way of defining God. The original Sanskrit, the Sanskrit is Asya Jagata Janmasthiti Bhanga Yasma Tad Brahma of this universe, the origin, existence, and final dissolution. Where that happens, in which that happens, that is God. So he says, that's my primary glory. That's one of my great glories, that I am the origin of all things. Um, then, so he had the commentator himself, the Sridhar Swami's commentary. Utpatti sthiti laya mad nadheya the origin of the universe, existence of the universe, and the final dissolution of the universe should be meditated upon as the glory of God. This is Krishna is saying this. And Adhyatma Vidya Vidyanam. Beautiful. He says, among all knowledge, spiritual knowledge, the knowledge of the self, here the commentator says, Adhyatma Vidya, Atma Vidya, the knowledge of the self. Who am I? This knowledge is the glory of God. Among all kinds of knowledge, Krishna says here, and the knowledge of the self, and spiritual knowledge. This question of who am I, that's the greatest knowledge. The Mundaka Upanishad, which we are studying now in the online Vedanta class, where uh, the student asks the teacher, teach me that thing by knowing which I know everything. And the teacher says, knowledge is of two kinds, the higher and the lower, the transcendent and the relative. The lower, the relative, is everything that we know. All kinds of uh, sciences and humanities and arts, whatever we know in this world, whatever is taught in the university, all of it, even conventional religion, all of it is the lower knowledge. And what's the higher knowledge? The knowledge of who am I, the spiritual knowledge, Brahma Vidya, the knowledge of Brahman, the science of Brahman. So the spiritual science, in every religion, that's the core. A religion is not a religion unless it has this as its core. The science of, you may not call it the science of the self, the theistic religions, they will call it the science of the knowledge of God. There are other religions where it's called the, science, the knowledge of the self. In Advaita, from Advaita Vedantic perspective, both are the same. Tattvamasi, you are that. That which is the secret of the universe and that which you are is one and the same. Yeah. Knowledge of who am I? Knowledge of the self. Or knowledge of God, both. And that, that is the greatest of all knowledge. And Krishna says here, among all knowledge, I am that. The Mundaka Upanishad says, Brahma Vidya Sarva Vidya Pratishtham. The greatest of all knowledge, the first among knowledge, our knowledge systems, the foundation of all knowledge is Brahma Vidya, the knowledge of, of Brahman. What does it teach us? It shows us who we are. And uh, who we are, the way to know it, there are various branches of this knowledge, streams of this knowledge. Uh, Vivekananda classifies it under his grand classification of the four yogas. What is spiritual knowledge? What is the science of spirituality? You can see it in four different methods, or four broadly four different approaches. One is the philosophical, the jnana yoga. One is um, the meditation, dhyana yoga. One is devotion, bhakti yoga, and another is that of action, karma yoga. Vivekananda calls it the philosophical, the mystical, devotional, and the practical. And we all proceed towards spirituality in one or more of these paths. Which, which is our path? We have generated over lifetimes, we have developed a kind of a mindset, a personality, certain tendencies. So there is a way in which we are progressing, each one of us. And one or more of these paths will be more suitable for us than the other. A true teacher, a good teacher, will guide us along the path which is most conducive to our 
um, quick development spiritually. All of those paths are true. All of them will take you to enlightenment. They take different people to enlightenment. But all of them may not suit me at, at this time. So Vivekananda's, uh, in Sri Ramakrishna, Vivekananda's uh, idea was, you develop along the path of your, your own growth, but take care to try to have the, a little bit of the others also. So if you are primarily intellectual, you are a jnani. But also do try to cultivate meditation and devotion and the practical side. If you are a dynamic person of action, you don't want to spend your time in musty old books or even worse, sit quietly. What are you doing? Meditating. Why are you wasting your time? <laughs> there are different ways in which religion has developed. People don't realize that. That's what leads to fanaticism. These are just different ways of developing spirituality. I remember in Christianity itself, so one of the most, uh, um, you know, one of my favorite books is The Imitation of Christ, which was written by a Catholic monk, French monk, about 700 years ago, 670. A beautiful book. Now, I went and asked um, a priest, uh, you know, about that book, and he, uh, he was saying that, yes, what are you reading? Um, and I said, this one. And he didn't like it at all, because he came from a Protestant order, which doesn't think of, uh, you know, withdrawal from the world and a life of exclusive prayer and turning away. Not good. You have to be engaged in the world. Now that is also right. But that's the development of the practical side of religion. This is the development of the mystical side of religion. If your idea of religion, especially in this day and uh, in, in, the, in this country, uh, the, it's basically a, a Protestant country. Uh, so, the idea of religion is always to do good. And here in this country, if you say that, people will say, yes, what else could it be? It could be many other things, I'd like to inform you. But yes, to do good is definitely a, a part of it, a great part of it. You know, improve yourself, improve society, improve the community, to do good to others. To be ethical, to be moral, and to improve society. So there's the practical side of religion, and that's true. That's a great way of being spiritual. Um, but there are other ways. You can entirely withdraw from society. That would be seen as quite evil and not spiritual at all by a practical karma yogi. But you can be a mystic. You can be in a convent or a monastery or in a cave in the mountains and pray and pray and pray and just do that and nothing else in your life. Or meditate and meditate and just do that and nothing else in your life. So these are the different ways of being spiritual. There's no need to fight. In fact, these are different capacities in the human being. It's good to develop them all. But also good to know that we each have a certain constitution. And need not be exclusively one. Nobody is exclusively devotional or exclusively intellectual or exclusively mystical. You have certain bits of the others also. So develop along that way. Uh, what is the uh, the path of the karma yogi? The path of the karma yogi. All of them, all of them have certain things in common. One is a turning away from worldliness into turning away towards God or spirituality. The karma yogi turns away from all selfish pursuits and wants to be completely selfless. A love for all beings and the desire to sacrifice himself or herself in doing good to um, humanity. That's karma yoga. No longer a pursuit of trying to glorify, aggrandize this little I, me, mine. That's karma yoga. The bhakti yoga, this I'm quoting Vivekananda, bhakti yoga is to take all our diverse desires which are continuously flowing out into the world. I want, I want, I want a hundred different things. Money and pleasure and relationships, Facebook likes and what not. I want, I want, I, all of this. And he says to give up all those little desires which flow out into the world in a hundred different streams and uh, in, in their place have one great love, one great love for God. That is bhakti, that's devotion. What is Raja Yoga, Dhyana, meditation? It is to give up again every possible worldly experience. Eyes want to see, no I will not see. Not hear, smell, taste, touch. I will not think about the world, speak about the world, turn inwards. All experiences are sacrificed at the altar of God experience. That is meditation. 
or spiritual experience. What is Jnana Yoga? Even the most extreme. The entire universe is sacrificed for the reality which is Brahman. Which is your own real nature. World is an appearance, a hallucination. Vivekananda goes so far as to say, what is life to you or death to you? Life is one side of the hallucination, death is another side of the hallucination. Let both go. It's not a call to suicide, by the way. <laughs> suicide is a kind of gross materialism. I'm suffering so much that I think if I destroy this body, my suffering will cease. At the root of this idea is the delusion that I am the body. It's gross materialism. So it doesn't end. Death doesn't end our suffering. It will just intensify it further in other realms of existence and finally again a new birth with starting not where we left off but far behind again. So again, suicide not a good idea. I'm giving you my speech. I mean, this next week I have to shoot a little documentary for the National Mental Health Week and where I have to tell people not to kill themselves. Bad idea, don't do it. <laughs> but what the Jnana Yogi says, beyond death, beyond life, you're what you are, the immortal existence, consciousness, bliss, Brahman, know you are that. And let the body live as long as it will. Let it die when it will die. Uh, Ashtavakra sings, uh, if the body lives for a hundred ages or it dies tomorrow, there's nothing to the enlightened one. So, all the four yogas, the, this, these are all signs of the self, Atma Vidya. These are the glories of God. Krishna says, this is, this is my, among all kinds of knowledge, this knowledge is who I am. Or think of me when you think of spiritual knowledge. Then, next, Vadaf Pravadatamaham. Alright, here's a little technical thing. In debate, I am the form of debate called Vada. A little context here. In ancient India, they developed this. Um, there are so many philosophies, so many teachers, so many streams of religion. And they didn't fight among each other. It was extraordinary tolerance and acceptance. What they did was, not that they agreed, they intensely disputed. There's a saying in Sanskrit, Nasamuni yasya matam na That one is not a sage who does not have an, an opinion of his own. You have to have, and some of those sages were women also, so you have to have an opinion of your own, then only you're counted. You have to have something of your own to say. So, they, had, they, were, they were so many philosophies, so many teachings. What did they do? They evolved an extraordinary system of um, talking things through. This was called the system of wada, of debate, of, um, of another name was katha, of debate. So, you are a master of your philosophy and you know mine also. I am a master of my philosophy, I know yours also. I think I am right, you think you are right. Let's sit and discuss this. I'll try to prove uh, my point of view. So, there are different kinds of debate. Uh, and they evolved such extraordinary rules for debate. This became the norm for more than um, 1500 to 2000 years. There are so many famous debates in the history of Indian philosophy. And that's why Indian philosophy grew. At no point there was this idea that, you know, I'm right, so I'm going to force you to come to my way of thinking or I'm going to kill you. That was never there. That's an extraordinary thing. It was never there primarily because at the root of all this lay a kind of um, instinctive understanding. The truth is one, the sages call it variously. You see? Yeah, that's where it is. You can see it, see it's written on the... That's one of the things which this Vedanta society stands for. It's from the Rig Veda. Ekam sad vipra bahuda vadanti. How can everything be true? Right, everything is not true. There is a truth. But we must discuss it and find out what the truth is. And even when you have found the one truth, know for certain that can be expressed and understood in different ways. So if somebody is saying something different from me, I don't automatically jump to the conclusion that he or she is wrong. It could be right. And in fact, it could be enriching for me to know it from that different perspective. So, um, and yet they disagreed. They intensely disagreed with each other. They were quite, each party was quite certain that we have got the truth. So how, how do you settle things? How do you proceed? Debate, discussion. Will Durant, the famous historian, he says, uh, ancient India 
was a you know the land mad about god i'm paraphrasing and so they had these gladiatorial combats not for actually with sword swords and weapons but debates so each side would debate and they developed these wonderful rules for example just a few examples i think you can apply them today also in in our discussions which often become become quarrels one one rule is before i reply to you i must quote back to you what you have said to your satisfaction so you say something to me and i'm eager to reply you see what happens is often we don't listen we are just waiting to give i'm going to say this <laughs> no first listen carefully to what the other person has said and to make it um, uh, make it compulsory uh, so the rule was i have to state back to you what you said uh, may not be in the same words but a, a good summary or paraphrase of what you said to your satisfaction you must say that all right you've got it what i said now i am free to give my reply that's a great rule you see often discussions turn into quarrels because we are not really listening to the other person we just thinking of our reply um and there would always be a like a referee or an umpire there are famous debates all throughout history uh, in in indian philosophy it in fact for example a thousand year period of development of indian philosophy was the long debate between the buddhists and the hindu schools the buddhists the hindu schools um talking about the atman and the existence of god and the buddhists attacking these concepts that there is no immortal soul there is no god and then the debate spread into areas from these metaphysical areas spread into areas of epistemology of of the philosophy of language and uh, very dense very intellectual very sophisticated and because you are being attacked you would have to refine your answers and come up with arguments so your position became more and more refined and so did the position of the others and if you study these schools the buddhist schools the sotrantika vaibhashika yogachara madhyamaka the hindu schools of nyaya vaisheshika sankhya yoga mimamsa and vedanta also you would notice amount of dna of the each school in each of the you know the same terms often the same arguments uh, as you interacted and remember it 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 happened over a period of a thousand years uh, from a couple of centuries after the buddha till about the you know the end of the peak of the nalanda culture and ended maybe a century or so before nalanda university was destroyed so debate now this debate is of different kinds vada jalpa vitanda three kinds of debate vada jalpa vitanda and krishna says among these i am vada i am one type of debate so what is the difference um so vada vada in fact that's entered into indian languages in bengali we say vad vivad in in hindi also vad vivad which means debating arguing but the, it it was a form of debate the form of debate where the goal is to find the truth so so a debate or discussion between the teacher and the taught or between two you know, reasonable balanced neutral thinkers who just want to know the truth arrive at a uh, the understanding of the truth so that's vada that's the best form of debate this next form another form of debate called jalpa so what is jalpa where each side tries to establish their own position and cut down the other side see the the search for truth is lost it becomes like lawyers like lawyers in court you argue for your position and argue against the other position so use all the techniques of logic uh, to establish your right and to cut down the position of the other so that's called jalpa then there's a third kind called vitanda vitanda is where you don't have a position you, all you do is cut down the other side <laughs> uh, you just say you are wrong and at the end, end of it you say okay smart guy so what do you have to say oh i have nothing to say i just i'm here to tell you that you are wrong <laughs> that might sound silly but it's some of the most sophisticated philosophical positions are vitanda for example one of the great um vaitandins the great practitioners of this form of debate was shri harsha a thousand years ago one of the great advaitins non dualists belonging to our school his position was 
I don't need to establish non-duality Advaita Vedanta. I just need to cut down every other school and so non-duality is sort of self-proved. It's evident, self-evident. It's just the confusions and delusions set up by all the other schools. I can show that they are wrong and then you will see for yourself Advaita is correct. You don't have to establish Advaita, non-duality. That's, he's a practitioner of Vitanda and the most sophisticated kind of debate. The master of this kind of debate was the great Buddhist master Nagarjuna, who lived nearly 2000 years ago, the, the emptiness guy. <laughs> His great book, Mula Madhyamaka Karika, uh, 28 chapters, I think. Each of these chapters is Avitanda, is um, to show the emptiness of all views. Shunyata Sarvadrishtina. Cause and effect. The law of karma, sort of sacrosanct in Buddhism, Jainism, Hinduism. He says it's shunyam, it's empty, it's self-contradictory. It falls apart under the slightest exam, under this examination which he suggests it to, which he subjects it to. The concept of, um, of self, the concept of, of uh, Buddha, this is empty, shunyam. The concept of the four noble truths, the concept of nirvana and samsara, all of them are empty. So he says shunyata sarvadrishtinam. Now somebody asks him, alright, but this philosophy of yours, then that's empty too. Because if every philosophy is empty, yours is empty too. Then he replies, this is a classic Vaitandin move. He replies, if I had a position, it would be subject to the fault which you ascribe to it. But since I have no position, I have no fault. <laughs> so that is called Vitanda. Among all these, Krishna says, no, 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 no. Vada is the right one. Search for truth. That's the only purpose of discussion and debate. Not to defeat anybody else, not to cut down people. Yes. Then, next. Aksharanam akarosmi Aksharanam akarosmi Dvandva samasikasya cha Dvandva samasikasya cha Ahamevakshaya kala Ahamevakshaya kalo Dhataham vishvato mukhaha of the letters I am a, the first letter in the Sanskrit alphabet, here is written as a in English, and of the com com compounds I am the dvandva. So this is something that you do in Sanskrit grammar, you join words together, there are two, two kinds of joining which is sandhi, which is based on pronunciation, and uh, the other one is called a compound, uh, samasa. Um, I am time. Ahameva akshaya kala. I am time itself. I'm reminded of um, Oppenheimer when he saw the first atom bomb explosion here. He knew the Gita very well. So he chanted from the 11th chapter, which we are going to come to soon. He says, I come, time, the destroyer of worlds. So here Krishna says, I am time. So, here the commentator points out, we may have forgotten, in the 30th verse which we have already done, Kala Kalayatamaham, among reckoners, reckoners I am time, among the calculators I am time. So, is he repeating himself? You see, in the 30th verse Krishna said I am time, and again in the 33rd verse Krishna is saying I am time. Is he repeating himself? Here the commentator says no. That is calculation of time. So there is, for example, somebody's lifespan. And the lifespan is running out and you calculate and this is it. And something that maybe nowadays it's a profession. You know, life insurance and all the, the statisticians who do that kind of job. Um, what are they called as a name for that? Actuaries, yeah. So you calculate probabilities and all for large masses of people, lifetimes. And here he says, I'm not, here I'm talking about time itself. In Sanskrit he says, Pravatmako akshaya kala uchyate. The continuous flow of time ceaselessly. It's not a particular lifetime. It's just past, present and future. Going on and on. I am that time. Then he says, Dhataham Vishvato Mukhaha. I am the giver of universal dispenser. So what's this? One of the central axioms of Indian philosophy is the law of karma. 
So all schools of Hinduism, all the various schools I just talked about who debated so much, and all of the Jains and all of the Buddhists and all of the, and the Sikhs, so all the schools of thought which have come from, Hind from India, one thing common among this tremendous diversity, diversity of thought and uh, belief and practice, is they take the law of karma to be axiomatic. And there's a good reason why they do that. The law of karma is nothing more than causality applied to our moral lives. So actions have consequences. Cause gives rise to result. So that's, that's the law of karma. Good, good, bad, bad, none escape the law. Mm. Dharma, punya, sukha. Adharma, papa, dukkha. So you do de deliberately, consciously do what you know to be right or what your religion tells you to be right, dharma, you are a um, dharmic, a righteous person, that gives rise to a certain merit, that is called punya, merit. And that punya is, gives rise to something that is pleasant for you in this life or the next life. So two parts of this um, connection we see, the actual virtuous action and the result which comes later on as something pleasant, nice happens to you, success comes to you and things go well, things go your way. In between the, that part is, we take it on faith. That's why when you say law of karma, it's not a strict scientific law. A strict scientific law is where you can link cause and effect directly. But in between there is this uh, faith component that, alright, so my actions, I cannot link them directly to the results. So the pain and suffering that I am having, having now, what is the mischief that I caused in this life or the past life? I can't link it. First of all, I don't even remember that. And I don't know which one caused what. So that component of merit. Or if I'm deliberately naughty, adharma, that gives rise to papa, which is sin or demerit. And the demerit or sin gives rise to pain, dukkha. So what we are taught is, that things are going well or sometimes things are not going well. Our life is a combination of um, pleasure and pain. And all of this is a result of our past actions. So this is law of karma. Now, um, and see the diversity of opinion. The Buddhists don't believe in God. They don't even believe in an immortal soul. They believe in the law of karma. Hindus believe in God and an immortal soul. And they believe in the law of karma. And all of them believe in rebirth. The moment you believe in the law of karma, you have to take it, an implication is birth and rebirth. So if all things are consequences of past actions, so when a baby is born, for example, it can't be ab initio. It can't be just something out of nothing. Because all babies are different. They have different kinds of lives and endowments. And, you know, they're born to rich parents or poor parents. They're born in wonderful environments or miserable environments. They're born with good health or poor health, various kinds of talents or no talents or whatever. Tremendous diversity. And they go through various kinds of experiences. Now, if they are consequences, everything is consequence of what we have done in the past, the baby hasn't done anything. Baby is completely innocent, seems like it. But then if it is true that actions have consequences, then these consequences which we are seeing in the life of a baby must have been caused in past lives. So you have to so you postulate a, post, uh, a, a previous anterior existence. So you existed before this birth. And we do so many things in this life, good and bad. You know, often there's a thing that this person was so evil and got off scot-free. Where is the punishment for his, uh, his or her actions? Well, you wait. <laughs> In there are future lives. Now who administers the whole system? You may say it's a self-administering system, then you have Buddhism. Then he says, no, there is a power which administers this. Then you have Hinduism. And then in all of uh, the, the theistic Hindu philosophies, uh, there is God and one of the functions of God in Hinduism is to dispense the results of karma. So like a cosmic banker, He's got all our information and he's fair. Not Wells Fargo or something, it's, he's fair. He, he doesn't run scams on us. I'm just not, not saying this, it's just Wells Fargo which is bad. It's, uh, banks run scams on us sometimes. But the cosmic banker doesn't. Um, and uh, he's absolutely fair. So God, one of the functions of God, you'll find that term karma phala data, karmadhyaksha. 
So often you find this term, whether you're talking about Shiva or Vishnu or Devi, whichever form of God, whichever particular brand of Hinduism you follow, one of the descriptions of God will be the giver of the results of karma. So that is one of my glories, Krishna says. Whatever is happening to you, I am behind it. Oh, that's terrible. You're making me suffer. No, no, no. You are making yourself suffer. I'm just giving you what you have earned in past lives. What we are today is what we have made of ourselves and what we do today shows what we will be in the future. You have tremendous... <laughs> Let me tell you a little story. Okay, two little stories. I'll end here. <laughs> Both of which I heard in the Himalayas about 20 years ago, um, um, 18 years ago. One story has some grounding in, in, you know, in actual events. I was once uh, attending a feast. So there are these what are called sadhu bhandaras, feasts for monks. Depending on where you are, if you're in a big city, then it might be a really nice affair with lots of food and lots of monks. Grand affair where every monk gets, uh, you, you give nice food to the monks and you give money as a, as a gift. So every monk might get a hundred rupees, which would work out to one dollar or something like that. Yeah. And that's a grand thing. Um, but if you go higher up in the mountains, where things, the population is sparse and people are not richer, it gets more and more austere. So I was really high up, that was 10,000 feet in the mountains, and things were really austere. We were invited to a feast and I happily went along. It's a change from your usual diet. Um, you had to sit on the, not the floor, there's no floor, it's on, on uh, literally on dirt, on a rock. And they put us to work in dressing the vegetables in there <laughs> to make our own feast. Finally, when it came time to eat, we're sitting and eating, and I'm sitting on, on it's, but it's, it's good, it's a magnificent view. You can see towering mountains and glaciers running down, and uh, it reminds you of Shiva's locks of hair with the Ganga running down and so on. And you're sitting there, uh, with the group of monks. One monk told me, you know, Swami, where you are sitting, um, Ramdev Baba, who's very famous in India as a great yoga master, he used to sit there and he would have, uh, we were having what is called pakoras, sort of fries. He would have his pakoras and collect his 10 rupees. 10 rupees is the, the uh, gift given to the monks. It would be what, 10 cents or something like that. Now, and look where he is now. And then he said, that monk said to me, there was another monk sitting in front, that's Indra Yogi. He was dressed in white, an old man with long white beard. We all know, both of them practiced yoga together in, their, uh, in the cave um, yonder. We all know Indra Yogi knows much better than this other Swami. I mean, he is an expert, real expert. And both of them, it's a very instructive story, both of them went out into the world at one point, decided they have sort of mastered it and they want to spread it and, you know, and whatever Ramdev Bawa touched turned into gold. So when he started a yoga camp, thousands turned up for it. Uh, whatever initiative started, he started a yoga school, immediately flourished. Um, and at that time, television, cable television was booming. So that came together with his teaching. And so he became a, like a television personality teaching yoga to the masses in India. And then along came an Ayurveda physician who joined him and it became a booming Ayurveda, uh, you know, so, so it's called Patanjali, uh, yeah. So it's very famous. Everybody in, in India knows about it and many people abroad also know about it. And not to say that he doesn't know what he's doing. He is good. But those monks told me this Indra Yogi is actually much better. Because whenever we have physical problems, we used to go to him, we still go to him. What about him? Whatever he tried failed. Nobody turned up to his yoga classes. He didn't even get a yoga school off the ground. Finally, in despair, he came back to the cave and he's still living there. <laughs> and Indra Yogi was listening to this. He, he chuckled to himself and shook his beard, you know. So I asked him, why does this happen? And he says, it's, it's something that we can, we all know, this is a story. All, all of us have seen, for example, in our academic and professional careers, the brilliant guy in our class who was uh, like a genius, but never amounted to much. 
the more enterprising guy who was not of a genius and not a great scholar or anything like that who's done brilliantly and become a multimillionaire you know we all know these stories so why why doesn't the greatest scholar the greatest engineer or the greatest scientist always come out on top so this monk it was tradition after food we would go for a walk until sunset which was around 5 o'clock or something we went and the walk is also stunning in the mountains so this monk told me the second story he said this is because of karma and he told me a beautiful story which i'll share with you um he said this is a story about the king janaka so and one day the king janaka one day somebody asked him oh janaka who is the king uh, oh janaka how is it that one human being has got all this because king janaka is known as a knower of brahman an enlightened person who has realized brahman you are a knower of brahman you are your you are a king the, you know most fortunate among human beings and your daughter is mother sita the divine mother of the universe is your daughter and your son in law is god <laughs> rama rama is your son in law so you have god as your son in law the divine mother shakti as your daughter and you are the uh, you are a knower of brahman enlightened and you are a king in, in worldly terms you are extraordinarily successful in spiritual terms you are extraordinarily successful and you are one of those rarest human beings who gets to be in the family of god and so how can one human being have all of this and janaka thought it's true how can i how did i get all of this and then in the, he had a dream janaka if you want to know the answer to this tomorrow start walking from your palace you know walk towards the east where the um, sun is rising and uh, at the end of the day when you where you see the sun setting uh, you will uh, find a man who is there who is eating leaves dry leaves ask him this story ask him this question he knows the answer to your question it's a long story i'm cutting it short Uh, strangely enough those, that monk used to tell me some very nice stories some of which have spread uh, popularized you know the yes such was such is this true or is that true that uh, that's also i heard that but i noticed one thing his stories went on till exactly sunset <laughs> so i had a suspicion he used to lengthen those stories until the sunset um so you go there and janaka started slipped out of his palace and he started walking till uh, the day end of the day and he saw under a tree there was this yogi sitting there and he was eating only dry leaves so he goes up to him before the he can say anything the yogi says to him oh janaka i know what your question is and i know the answer but i will not tell you you rest here tonight tomorrow start walking towards where the sun is rising and you walk and walk and walk and you come to the place where the, where the sun sets and uh, you will see a yogi eating only ashes ask him he knows the answer so he starts doing that and walking walking and then he comes to this at the end of the next day he comes to this yogi who's sitting there eating ashes uh and he goes up to him and the yogi of course says janaka i know the answer to your question but i won't tell you rest here tonight tomorrow you walk and walk and walk towards where the sun is rising when the sun sets you'll find come across a village the last village of your empire of your kingdom and there in the house of the headman you will see a newborn babe and uh, that baby knows the answer to your question ask that newborn baby uh, and uh, he will answer your question so next day it's coming to an end <laughs> janaka starts walking and he comes to a village indeed the headman's house there there's a lot of rejoicing because a child has been born and he goes and asks the headman headman's delighted unexpected visit you know suddenly you have uh, air force one coming and something like that and president coming and not announced at all uh, so uh he says this is a great blessing and please bless my newborn son and um then janaka says can you just leave me alone with the baby and i need to talk to the baby baby can of course <laughs> talk and when he goes the baby speaks and he he says janaka i know your question uh, and i am going to tell you the answer at last i'm going to tell you the answer um uh, he says that in this village in times of your long long ago uh, there lived this old uh, this widow uh, who was very poor and she had four children she had four sons and she could hardly make ends meet and desperate to feed her her children now one day she, all she could get was four chapatis four pieces of bread 
and she gave one to each child and she decided to not to eat that night but god who wanted to test the virtue of this poor family he appeared in the form of a guest and in india you don't turn away a guest so he comes to the guest and knocks and gets to the little hut and knocks and the old lady receives um, the, the widow receives him and he says feed me for i am hungry and it's your duty to feed a guest and she says i have no food but i see there are four chapatis she says but i've given them to my little children it's theirs now you must ask them so the guest goes very ruthless ask the eldest boy give me your chapati for i am uh, hungry and i have come to your house and the boy says what i'll give you my food and uh, what will i eat dry leaves and he didn't give him that uh, that chapati and and that boy has been born as that yogi you find who you know passes his days eating dry leaves then the guest goes on to the next little child younger child and asks give me your chapati for i am hungry and i have come to your door and the little boy says what i'll give you my chapati and uh, um uh, then what am i going to eat ashes and you see you met the yogi who eats only ashes he's been born and he, he he gets to eat only ashes then he goes to the third little boy and says to him give me your chapati for i have come to your house and i'm hungry and so on and the little boy says no if i give you my food i'll die and that little boy didn't give him that food that chapati and janaka i am that little boy i am born in different families the day i'm born the next day i die i'm born today tomorrow i'm going to die um, and this has been going on since that time and then he goes to the last boy a little kid and the guest asks give me your food for i am hungry and the little boy immediately gives him the food and that little boy died of hunger that night and that little boy went to heaven and lived for a thousand years in heaven and that little boy was born on earth and became a mighty king and an enlightened man and the father of of the divine mother and the <laughs> father in law of god and that is you janaka and around that time the sun set so <laughs> i have a feeling it would have gone on a little further <laughs> but the whole uh, the story was the power of karma and that is given good karma tremendous good karma where you give up you sacrifice a lot and you get back a thousand fold more so this is the kind of belief uh, we hindus or buddhist jains all of us we have in the law of karma and this results of karma are given by god krishna says that is one of my glories that when you get the results of karma think about it good and bad it comes from god शांति 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 हरि ओम तत्सत् श्रीरामकृष्णापणमस्तु